I have this light bulb. It has been driving me nuts. So before I start preaching, I'm just going to fix that real fast. Would you mind? Would that be all right with you? I can talk. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> hey, uh, I don't usually say stuff like this, but I'm going to today. Uh, do you ever have that experience when you're writing your sermon for the week, and you're writing, and you know that what you're writing is accurate, it's from the Bible, but you're just not sure that this is the sermon you're supposed to preach? you ever have that experience? You guys, you have that experience? Okay. Well, I'm glad I'm not the only one. Well, this was one of those weeks when I felt like, golly, I'm, I'm, I'm staying true to what the Bible says, and, and I get that, and all that is, it's fine. I'm just, I'm not sure... I'm not sure. And so up through this morning, I was, I was prepared to call an audible. I had no idea. I came to church, and I'm just like, you know what, God, I'm ready for whatever you got. You just, you just do your thing, and I'm going to listen. So I get to Sunday school, and uh, everything that I'm supposed to talk about today is what God wants me, or everything that I'd prepared is what God wants me to share. And so if you don't like it, you know, take it up with God. It's not me, all right? (laughs) I just wanted wanted to say that. Hey, if you're a guest here with us today, Luke talked about the Connect cards. I want to add one thing to that. If you are a first time guest, if it's your first time here, why don't you find me after service in the lobby? I have a small gift for you. Fair enough? All right, good deal. Uh, I want to start with a story. April 1, 1996. Some of you history buffs may know what happened on April 1st of 1996. The Taco Bell Corporation took out a full-page ad that appeared in six major newspapers across the country. Here's what they announced. They announced that they had bought the Liberty Bell and that they were renaming it the Taco Liberty Bell. Hundreds and hundreds of outraged citizens called the National Historic Park in Philadelphia where the Liberty Bell is housed, and they expressed their outrage. It wasn't until hours later that Taco Bell revealed on the nightly news that it was, in fact, April 1st, otherwise known as April Fool's Day, and they'd been playing a practical joke. Best line of the day came when the uh, press secretary of the White House, Mike McCurry, was asked about the sale, and he said, yeah, that's not, the, that's not it. That's just the tip of the iceberg. The Lincoln Memorial has been sold and will henceforth be known as the Ford Lincoln Mercury Memorial. <laughs> that's a silly joke. I don't even know why I told it. I'm just kidding. Hey, I'm glad you're here. If you're a member, regular attender, guest, first-time guest, I am so glad that you are here. There's a million other things that you could be doing this morning, but you have taken this opportunity to come here and uh, worship God together. I've loved the opportunity that we've had to sing praises to our God this morning. I'm so glad that you could be a part of that. We're going to start a new sermon series this week. It's called Cleverly Invented Stories. We're going to be studying through the book of 2 Peter. And the idea is this. We get a lot of information. We have a lot of information in the world we live in. In fact, Leah and I were talking about this yesterday. Uh, Everybody says that the world is worse right? Um, Forgive my expression. The world's going to heck in a handbasket. You can fill in the other word on your own, but, you know. I don't use those words. Anyway, uh, the world's going to, going to hell in a handbasket, and we're just along for the ride. 
And I don't know that that's the case. I, I, can, I can look back throughout history and I can hear different news stories and it seems like the world was pretty messed up for as long as we can remember. You know what the difference is? The speed at which we have access to information. The speed at which we have access to information. So uh, Lee and I were listening to a podcast the other day, and it was about a, a man named Harry Thaw. And he lived in a prominent Philadelphia family, right? If America had aristocracy, Harry Thaw would have been from the aristocracy in the early 1910s. And, and he was an evil, evil man. He spent his whole life seducing young girls and young boys and beating them to death. See, the world that we live in now isn't, isn't worse than the world that has always existed. It's just we have access to information more quickly. We have access to information more quickly. We hear a lot of information. Some of it's true. Some of it's just cleverly invented stories. Some of it's true news that we would do well to hear. Some of it's just cleverly invented stories because fear sells ad time. Fear keeps you on this channel. Some of it's true. Some of it's cleverly invented stories because it's what we'd rather hear. Some of it is true and some of it is just what we want to hear because what we want to hear is easier than what we need to hear. All throughout the Bible they talk about this. Paul says that there are going to be preachers that come that just tickle your ears. That's a weird expression, isn't it? But they're going to tell you what you want to hear rather than what you need to hear. They're going to say, hey, your life is awesome. You're doing great just the way you are. You don't need to change that sin in your life. It's really not that big of a deal. Don't change. Don't worry. There's going to be people that are going to tell you what you want to hear rather than what you should hear. There are going to be people that say, God would rather you be rich instead of God would rather you be a servant. Because... If you had the choice, what would you rather be, rich or a servant? The Bible calls us to be servants. And there's a lot of things that we have access to. There's a lot of information that we have access to. Some of it's truth. Some of it's cleverly invented story. How do we tell the difference? The best way to tell the difference is to become accustomed to the truth, to spend as much time with the truth as possible, to become intimately familiar with the truth. And when we do that, we'll become more and more aware of what's not true. So as we start this study called Cleverly Invented Stories, I want to start by telling you the truth. I'm going to start by telling you the truth. That's what we're going to do today, is just look at the truth. Now, a little bit of context. Peter wrote this book, 2 Peter, to combat false teachers that were making their way into the church. Peter wrote 2 Peter to combat false teachers. By the way, if you're a guest, you're looking up at the screen, why are some of the letters white and some of them orange? We have a fill-in-the-blank sermon outline in your bulletin. That'll help you take some notes, keep track of where I'm going, how I'm preaching today. So Peter wrote 2 Peter to combat false teachers that were making their way into the church, and they were telling a lot of cleverly invented stories. 
And the primary story that they were telling was called Gnosticism. And frankly, Gnosticism is something that churches still struggle with today. I'll put it as simply as possible. Gnosticism says that knowledge is the key to salvation. Knowledge is the key to salvation. We hear jokes about this. We hear jokes about some churches, right? And maybe it's just in preacher circles. Um, But some churches have a holy trinity that consists of Father, Son, and Holy Scriptures, right? Maybe that's just a preacher joke. Feel free to not laugh. It's fine. Didn't want you to anyway. All right? And and there's this uh, perfectly understandable reason why Gnosticism is still uh, powerfully affecting the church today. It's a lot easier to study the Bible than it is to live the Bible. That's why Gnosticism is affecting churches today, because it's a lot easier to study the Bible than it is to live the Bible. It's a lot easier to read love your neighbor as yourself than it is to love your neighbor as yourself. It's a lot easier to read if they strike you on the cheek, turn the other cheek to them, than it is to actually turn that other cheek. It's a lot easier to read die to yourself than it is to actually die to yourself. So we, re- we create a system that rewards the acquisition of knowledge and discourages the accompanying action. You see what we do there? Since it's hard to live out what the Bible says, we create a system that says knowledge is up here Rewards knowledge, but it discourages the accompanying action. Gnosticism is a problem in churches all over the world today because living out the Bible is really, really hard. The Bible is a book to be trusted and learned. It's also a book to be lived out. Now, don't get me wrong. I don't want you to leave here today and say, Tony is anti-Bible study. That's not what I'm saying at all. Studying the Bible isn't a bad thing. In fact, it's an incredibly good thing. It's an incredibly healthy thing. But understand that Bible knowledge isn't the end goal. Let me say that again for you, okay? Bible knowledge isn't the end goal. What is the goal? Living a life that looks more and more like the life of Jesus. Living a life that looks more and more like the life of Jesus. Peter wrote this book to remind his readers to be on guard against false teachers. And he says the primary way to recognize a false teacher is to ask this simple question. Does their message focus on the life change that comes from Jesus? Does their message focus on the life change that comes from Jesus? If it doesn't, maybe you ought to listen with some more critical ears. A lot of false teachers out there that say really bible sounding things. You ever heard people that say really bible sounding things? Don't name names in case I'm on your list, okay? There's a lot of people that say really bible sounding things, but never call us to change and become more like Jesus. There's never a call to leave sin for the purpose of pursuing God. There's never a call to live humbly or selflessly. The best way to recognize a false teacher is to ask, does the message focus on the life change that comes from Jesus? I want to show you what I mean because I'm not just 
telling you my opinion. This is from the by where I'm going. Second Peter chapter, chapter 1, we'll start in verse 1, all right? This letter is from Simon Peter, a slave, an apostle of Jesus Christ. I'm writing to you who share the same precious faith that we have. This faith was given to you because of the justice and fairness of Jesus Christ our God and Savior. May God give you more and more grace and peace as you grow in your knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. I humbly submit to you this morning that this greeting is about life change. This greeting is about life change. Now, I know some of you are looking in your Bibles right now and you have a little bit of uh, pushback. You're going, wait a minute, Tony. It very clearly says uh, that our knowledge will grow. Look at all you got to do is read your Bible, your knowledge will grow. Our knowledge of God will grow and our knowledge of Jesus. But that isn't the end goal. Instead, that knowledge leads to something else. It leads to more grace and more peace. And guess what grace and peace do? They change the way we live. Grace and peace change the way we live. Uh, I'm not making this stuff up, by the way. In Luke chapter 7, Jesus told a parable once. It's about a man. Uh, He was a money lender, and he had lended money to two different people. One of the guys owed him 500 denarii. It's an incredibly large sum of money. Okay, Uh, It's almost unfathomably large. And then the other guy owes him 50 denarii. That's just a lot of money. Okay, uh, and neither one of them can pay, so this money lender forgives both of them. And then Jesus poses a question. He says, "All right, guys, which one of those two do you think loved the money lender more?" And Peter replies. He says, "I suppose the one who was forgiven more. That's the one who loves more." Peter says, "I suppose the one who was forgiven more." Jesus goes on to say, "Exactly." Exactly. People who are forgiven much love greatly. People who are shown much grace can show much grace. People who are loved can love. The more we understand our forgiveness, the more capable we are of love. Grace. This forgiveness that we don't deserve, it changes the way we live. It changes the way we live. And I suspect as Peter sat down to write this letter, he wrote, he was reminded of that lesson that Jesus taught him several years before. Grace changes the way that we live. And you know what? Peace changes the way that we live. Jesus taught a lesson on this too. It's in the Sermon on the Mount. He says uh, something along the lines of, don't worry. Remember this? Don't worry about what you will eat or what you will drink or, or what you will wear. Instead, I'm going to skip down just a little bit. Don't worry about what you eat or drink or wear. Instead, seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. And you'll have the peace to know that comes with the knowledge that God provides everything we need. If you seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, God will provide everything you need. So you don't have to worry about what you will eat or drink or wear. Grace and peace change the way we live. And I suspect that as Peter sat down to write this letter, he remembered that lesson that Jesus taught him. Peter says that grace and peace change the way that we live. So we should 
seek to have more grace and peace, right? We, we can seek more Bible knowledge. We should study our Bibles and know our Bibles intimately and study God's Word, but not just so we can have more Bible knowledge, but so that our lives can be transformed, so that we can have more grace and peace in our lives to live more and more like Jesus. Peter says, he goes on to say, that the way we get more grace and peace is to grow in the knowledge of God and Jesus as our Lord. Now, easy for me to say that, easy for Peter to write that, but I want to show you what that looks like, okay? Um, picking back up. By his divine power, God has given us everything that we need for living a godly life. We've received all of this by coming to know him, the one who's called us to himself by means of his marvelous, and, and, uh, marvelous glory and excellence. And because of his glory and excellence, he's given us great and precious promises. And these are the promises that enable you to share his divine nature and escape the world's corruption by human desires. In view of all this, make every effort to respond to God's promises. Supplement your faith with a generous provision of moral excellence, and moral excellence with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with patient endurance, and patient endurance with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love for everyone. All right. What do we just read? Let's make this as easy as possible on all of us. What do we just read? God has given us everything that we need to live a godly life. Verse 3 says that. See? God has given us everything we need for living a godly life. Thank you, God. That was nice of you. All right, that's great news. I'm going to ask you a question. We think of everything that we need for living a godly life. If I were to sit down and, and write my list, I might put on there... Well, house, car, car big enough for two car seats, it's important to me, dishwasher, obviously, um, you know, a refrigerator, right? If we were thinking about all of these things that we would write on a list of the things that we need to live a godly life, I could come up with a pretty substantial list quickly. The Bible paints a different picture than that, though. What do we need to live a godly life? We need forgiveness of our sins and God's Spirit to lead us and guide us. And I'm here to tell you, I'm here to tell you that God has given us everything we need to live a godly life. And those promises, those promises, this promise that God has given us everything that we need to live a godly life, forgiveness of our sins, and God's Spirit to lead us and guide us, those promises enable us to look more and more like Jesus and less and less like the world around us. Put up verse 4. I'm not just making this stuff up. Ready? These promises enable you to share His divine nature. It's not about more knowledge. It's about more Jesus being seen through me. It's not about more knowledge. It's about more Jesus being seen through me. I had a friend of mine was talking in Sunday school today, and uh, they mentioned that they have a demanding job, and sometimes they allow that job to be more demanding um, than, than it should be. And I thought, 
But what you don't understand is every day when you go to work, you have the opportunity and you take that opportunity to show the love of God to the people that you work with. See, my person has a profession, my friend has a profession, but what they really are is a cleverly disguised missionary. And I'm so grateful for that missionary friend of mine. It's not about more Bible knowledge. It's about more Jesus being seen through me. It's about more Jesus being seen through you wherever you go. Now, that's real easy to say. Makes for a good sermon. Easy listening. Easy on the ears, right? But, but if we want to understand how we can do that, how we can be more and more like Jesus and less and less like uh, old me, I, I don't know about you, but I like some practical steps. Okay, I'm a big picture thinker. Right? I, I can think about designing Disney World in the clouds, but I could never get it done. I need practical steps. And Peter is so obliging, he gives us some practical steps on how to accomplish this more of Jesus, less of me thing. So here we go, picking up in verse 5. In view of all of this, make every effort to respond to God's promises. Supplement your faith with a generous provision of moral excellence. Moral excellence with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control. Self-control with patient endurance, and patient endurance with godliness. Godliness with brotherly affection, brotherly affection with love for everyone. So he says, do all of these things. Once you are committed, once you're in the game, make every effort to respond to God's promises. And he takes us through this list. All right, once you have supplement uh, your faith with a generous provision of moral excellence and on and on and on. But um, I want to look at that progression a little bit because right now those are just words. I want to show you this picture that Peter is painting. Okay? I want to I show you this picture that Peter is painting here. Um, first, we've got to pursue moral excellence. First, we've got to pursue moral excellence. Um, and I need you to imagine something with me, okay, as we begin to see this, this picture that Peter's painting. Um, how many of you can see what color the stage is? If you know what color the stage is, just go ahead and shout it out. I was going to say burgundy, but fine, it's red. It's fine, it's fine, fine with me. We'll go with red. I don't actually know what burgundy is. Leah always tells me that's wrong. But uh, yeah, the stage is red, and now I need you to use your imaginations for just a little bit this morning, okay? Um, imagine that everything that's on the stage that is red is sin, okay? No, that's not going to work. Okay. Imagine everything that's on the stage is red, and uh, this is my little friend here. I picked him out because he looks like me. And he's going to help me um, talk about what Peter is describing here. First, we have to pursue moral excellence. That's God's way of saying we've got to get out of our sin. And so my little buddy here is going to say, I better climb up here. Okay, That's a pretty good start. And he's working hard at this. He's living his life and he is pursuing God. He is reading his Bible. He's being transformed. All right? He is being convicted of sin. And over the course of years, he's learning to look more and more like God. And God keeps revealing different areas and aspects of his life that need to change. Maybe down here it is an outward sin that he's struggling with. But as he gets further up the ladder, it's um, the thoughts and attitudes of his heart. Maybe he's realizing, oh, 
man, I had no idea I struggled with pride, but golly, I guess I do. And as he climbs further and further up the ladder, he's looking more and more like Jesus. And then he, get, he gets up here, and he looks awful comfy. Everybody give Goofy a hand, right? He is, he is a good, godly Christian. He's not perfect, right? He's a little goofy. He's not perfect, but he is pursuing God. He's doing the best he can with his entire life to pursue God. He's on top of the ladder. Praise God. Then he keeps reading. He's up there, and he's reading his Bible, and... Uh, he, he reads his Bible on his phone. That's not sinful. Um, that's how Goofy reads his Bible. Uh, and here's what, here's what he does when he keeps reading. He says, now I have to su- supplement my knowledge with moral excellence. Why? So that I'm better equipped to do the will of God. That's why. So that I'm better equipped to do the will of God. You're going, Tony, what, you're moving him down the ladder? Are you saying that are you saying that our knowledge makes us less godly? Not at all. Our Bible knowledge does not make us less godly. What I'm saying is that as we read our Bible, as we grow in the knowledge of God, what we'll learn is that God's goal for us is not to live on top of the ladder. God's goal isn't for us to live on top of the ladder, and so as Goofy continues, he starts to move back down. Then comes self-control. Getting further down the ladder, why? Why is Goofy getting further down the ladder as he grows in his faith? He's just going to have to be okay. If he falls, remember he's there. Okay. Why, Why is he going down the ladder? See, he's getting closer to the temptations that he struggled with on the other side of the ladder. You're getting closer to the temptations he struggled with on the other side of the ladder, but now he's working on his self-control. He's no longer at the mercy of sin. He's no longer a slave to sin. In fact, he is ministering in the world that he used to live in. Then we add patient endurance to that list. Why? Because at this point, you're you're swimming upstream, right? We got patient endurance. He is swimming upstream at this point. He's holding on for dear life to his patient endurance. He values the things of God and the world that he lives in doesn't value the things of God. Then we add godliness. Let me tell you what my friend Nick Skinner has to say about godliness. He says godliness cannot be fabricated. We can't merely pretend to be godly. The quality of godliness comes from God himself. We receive it as we are dead to self and alive to God and as we allow the Spirit to live within us. The more we are possessed by God, the more we will act like God and the more His character will be revealed in our lives and the more we will understand His will. What did my buddy Nick just say? Let me tell you. This isn't in your outline, but maybe you want to write this down. This is what my friend Nick just said. Godliness is putting the priorities of God above our own. Godliness is putting the priorities of God above our own. And as Goofy continues to go down the ladder, he learns the value of putting the priorities of God above his own. You know what? It's more comfy up here. It's safer up here. 
There's no moral challenge. There's no temptation up here. It's safer up there, but that's not what God is calling him to. Let me give you an example. Let me give you an illustration of godliness. John the Baptist, he had a thriving ministry. He preached at the first Christian church of the wilderness, right? And and people were coming from all over to hear his sermons. His message was really pretty simple, but it was effective. Repent because Jesus is coming. It was a good sermon. Repent because Jesus is coming. You know what happened? Jesus came. Pretty good sermon, right? So he's preaching his sermon, uh, and people are coming to listen to him. He's got a, a successful church, a lot of baptisms at the first Christian church of the wilderness. Tithing's good. Give me, I understand this is just an example, right? Uh, understand things are going well at the first Christian church of the wilderness. Then Jesus comes, and John has this temptation, right? He could, he could say, well, Jesus is here, but I kind of like what I'm doing. I'm just going to keep on keeping on. And uh, Jesus can do his thing, but I like what I've got going on here in the wilderness. But he doesn't say that. What does he say? He says, Jesus must increase and I must decrease. Godliness is putting the priorities of God above our own. Let me give you another example in case you're not sold on this yet. Jesus, it's at the end of his ministry. He finds himself in a garden and he's having prayer time. He's having prayer time because he's about to be betrayed and delivered into the hands of the men who will ultimately kill him. And so he prays. Here's what he says. He says, Father, if you are willing, please take this cup from me. What's he mean by that? I don't want to do this. This is going to be awful, God. They're going to crucify me. They're going to torture me to death. I don't want to do this. If there's any other way to accomplish what needs to happen, let's do that. Then he goes on to say, not my will, but yours be done. Godliness is putting the priorities of God above our own. Goofy's trying. It's not easy. We're all going to fail at that sometimes. We're all going to put our own priorities above the priorities of God. But guess what? That's where grace comes in. So when we have godliness, we add to that brotherly affection. We have to show our love for each other. We have to show our love for each other. Jesus said that the world would know us by how we love one another. He said, by this all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. And as we love one another, we get closer down here. And finally, what's the last thing? What's the last thing on that list? It says love, right? It says love, doesn't it? Does your Bible say anything after love? Mine says for everybody. Suddenly, Goofy's back down here at the bottom of the ladder in this world of sin. He's living in a hard place to live God wants to take us out of our sin. But that's just step one. We have a tendency to want to stop there. We have a tendency to say, God, please take us out of our sin and put us on top of the ladder. And that's where we want to stop because it's comfortable there. But God's will for us isn't that we would live on top of the ladder. 
God has a next step. He wants to put us next to sinners. He wants to put us next to sinners so that they can see the difference that Jesus makes in our lives and so that they can see the difference that Jesus can make in their lives. Vince Antonucci is a preacher, and here's what he has to say on this subject. He says, if you're not close to someone who's far from God, you're not as close to God as you think. Those are tough words, aren't they? Goofy, you're doing good work down here, buddy. You just keep being close to people who are far from God and letting them see the example of what Jesus is doing in your life. Okay, buddy? If you're not close to someone who's far from God, you're not as close to God as you think. God takes us up the ladder. He really does. He wants to continually sanctify us over the course of our lives. He wants us to go up the ladder. He doesn't want us to stop there. He wants us to go on the other side of the ladder because that's where hurting people are. That's where people who are searching for meaning are. That's where people who are sad and lonely and depressed and hurting and empty and confused are. Living on top of the ladder is not what God wants for us. Jesus didn't live that way. Instead, he humbled himself by entering the world he created and living among us. He further humbled himself by being obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, because that's what we needed. He came down from the top of the ladder and lived among sinners because that's what we needed. He lived among sinners because that's where I was. And that's where you were. And maybe that's where you are. Living on top of the ladder is not what God wants for us. It's the voices on top of the ladder that shout, God hates fags, to a group of people that are desperately searching for love. Did you ever think about that? They're desperately searching for love, and we know the one who loves them. It's the voice on top of the ladder that berates a woman who's leaving an abortion clinic. It's the voice on top of the ladder that says, get yourself straightened out before you get here. It's the voice on top of the ladder that says, dress, act, think, talk, and be like me before you get here. It's the voice on top of the ladder that looks down with a moral superiority to which they are unentitled. And the Bible says, come right now, just as you are, but don't leave the same way, please. If Jesus didn't live on top of the ladder, well, I just don't think we should either. So I invite you today, if you're on top, come down. Would you come down? We all live up there sometimes, and we do it for different reasons. Some of us are up there because we started our climb, and as we look down, golly, the world sure, sure looks a little different than when I started my climb. It's a scarier place. I get it. Can I encourage you with something? The world we live in looks differently than the world maybe you grew up in, but I want to encourage you with something. The world took its best shot at Jesus, and it wasn't enough. The world took its best shot at Jesus, and it wasn't enough. The world that we're sometimes scared of, that seems different and scary and unknown, and, and, and we just don't like it as much as 
What used to be the world took its best shot at Jesus and it wasn't enough. The most powerful nation in the world killed Jesus in its most terrible way and they buried him behind a sealed tomb with armed guards and the power of God with no apparent effort prevailed. The world took its best shot at Jesus and it wasn't enough. So I understand The world down here at the bottom looks a lot different than the world you saw when you started your climb. Don't be afraid. Because we serve a God who is living and active and who will prevail over all the powers of darkness which do exist in the world. Now maybe some of you, (laughs) maybe some of you live at the top of the ladder. This is me from time to time. Maybe some of you live at the top of the ladder because you just don't like some of the people at the bottom. We all struggle with this in different ways if we're being perfectly honest with ourselves. And this is church, so I think you should be. Sometimes we just don't like people. Can I just encourage you to come down? We're all going to have people in our lives that we struggle to get along with. Jesus says, I'm going to paraphrase a little, shut up and love them anyway. I don't know what you need to do. I don't, need, I don't know if you need to head up or down today, but I know you have a direction you need to go. All of us live at the top of the ladder sometimes, but Jesus came to earth and lived at the bottom so that each of us could encounter his amazing grace, his amazing forgiveness that we don't deserve. So I invite you today, follow Jesus down the ladder or maybe follow him up. On behalf of Jesus, I'd like to invite you up. I'd like to invite you out of the empty pursuit of pleasure and selfish ambition or the pursuit of acceptance because Jesus loves you specifically. He knows you and loves you. I'd like to invite you up because Jesus lived for you and died for you so that you could be forgiven and purified and made right and made new and made holy. I'd like to invite you up because Jesus has a greater purpose for your life than the disappointment you feel. I'd like to invite you up because there's grace for you and there's grace for you to share. So if you need to climb up the ladder, I want to invite you to climb up the ladder. It starts right there in baptism where forgiveness of sins and the gift of God's spirit is given. Boy, that kind of goes full circle. Everything we need for living a godly life. Or maybe you need to come down. Maybe you need to come down. Peter wrote this book because there's a lot of false teaching that was infiltrating the early church, and today there's a lot of biblical-sounding teaching that isn't. So as we close, I want to share some truth with you if you need to come down the ladder. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And he has equipped his church to carry on that work. The real gospel is about life change. No matter where we are in our faith, the gospel has work to do on each of us. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners and he has equipped his church to carry on that work. To be effective in our work, we've got to climb the ladder and come back down. Each of us, has a direction to head this morning. If it's up, come forward as we sing. 
And if it's down, I want to invite you to pray with me now. God, would you forgive me of my self-righteousness? God, would you forgive me when I think I know what's right? Would you forgive me when I look down on people who are hurting? When I have no sympathy for sinners who are in need of a Savior? God, would you give me courage and wisdom to love them the way that you would? Would you give me courage and wisdom to share your love with a world that so desperately needs it? God, would you do the same for my friends? We want to be your servants. We want to look more and more like you. So would you please begin to work on our hearts anew this morning? Would you take everything that we've learned about your word over the course of our lifetimes? For some of us, it's a lot, and for some of us, a little. Would you take everything that we've learned, God? And would you help us put it into action for your name's sake? I pray all of this in the beautiful name of my Savior Jesus. Amen.